There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. L is for... Lodger. Bowie's 13th studio album, released in May 1979 by RCA, it's viewed as the last in the Berlin trilogy, even though it's recorded in Switzerland and New York. Go figure. Mm. Brian Eno and producer Tony Visconti were once again with him as they'd been on Low and Heroes. Unlike those albums, however, Lodger didn't have any instrumentals and was a little more pop. At the same time, Bowie was introducing elements of what became known as world music. He described it as a sketchbook of experiences among other cultures. It spawned several singles, including the UK top 10 hit Boys Keep Swinging. It's been seen as a signpost to 90s Britpop as well. Oasis named Don't Look Back in Anger after Lodger's Look Back in Anger whilst Blur borrowed the chord sequences from Fantastic Voyage and Boys Keep Swinging for 1997's M.O.R. So much so, in fact, that M.O.R. ended up being credited to Blur stroke Bowie stroke Eno. I didn't know that. Yeah. Right, okay. The album was originally due to be called Planned Accidents or Despite Straight Lines. It was mostly recorded between legs of Bowie's Isolar 2 tour and featured the same musicians along with Brian Eno. The recording sessions saw Bowie and Eno continue to use the latter's oblique strategies cards but there's plenty of experimental uh, stuff going on as well. Old tunes played backwards using the same chord sequences for different tunes and having the musicians swap instruments as on uh, Boys Keep Swinging, more of which in a bit. Yeah, they weren't that keen, were they? Okay, so Bowie said later, in fact to me and Stephen Dalton uh, for Uncut in 2001, yes. so that's you've written that it idea, is, Bob. Yes. Uh, Brian and I did play a number of art pranks on the band. They really didn't go down too well, though, especially with Carlos Alomar, who tends to be quite grand. Ooh, ouch. Uh, Bowie was also very much into creating conditions in the studio that might make the best use of any accidents or mistakes. The piano player on the sessions, Sean Mays, said later, Bowie was very keen on spontaneity. He liked everything to be recorded in one or two takes, mistakes and all. Again, it's Bowie's way of going about business. Full show. Uh, so on lead guitar was Robert Fripp's future King Crimson bandmate, Adrian Bill who Bowie had poached while a guitarist had been touring Europe with Frank Zappa. We covered this well, didn't we? We did. So Bowie was stood on the side of the stage and when Frank Zappa was doing one of his solos, he, he had a chat with Bowie and poached him. Brilliant. He did. Um, with Frank Zappa, like, you know, 20 feet away. Just love that. Uh, much of Baloo's work on the album was put together from multiple takes played against unfamiliar backing tracks. So, Adrian Baloo, this would be in 2001. Adrian Baloo talking to me about this album. He said, when I arrived at Lake Geneva in Switzerland where it was recorded, they had about 20 tracks done and the rhythm section and myself were brought in to give things some colour. The recording room was above the control room so they could see you via a camera, but you couldn't see them. And they played with these tapes and wanted my initial reaction to the music, which I'd never even heard before, and I just started to play. Okay, so we can 
continued. Eno had a chart of favourite chords on the wall. He'd point to a chord and then you'd just go along and improvise. They were great advocates of getting you to do things you never realised you could do. This ability to pull out of yourself things you wouldn't dream of. You wouldn't even hear the songs. No tempo, no key, and it immediately throws you into a different space. You expect one thing and you get another. It was one giant brainstorm. Yeah, Eno felt that the trilogy had petered out by Lodger. Baloo also sensed that the working relationship between Bowie and Eno was winding down. He said they didn't quarrel or anything uncivilised like that. They just didn't seem to have the spark that I imagine they might have had during the Heroes album. Mm. So Visconti said, I don't think David's heart was in Lodger. We had fun, but nevertheless an ominous feeling pervaded the album for me. Yeah, having uh, dropped the initial idea of dividing the album into one side of proper songs and one of instrumentals as he'd done on Low and Heroes, Bowie's lyrics themes on Lodger involve travelogue and the follies of the Western world. Okay, so the songs Fantastic Voyage, a song about the nuclear arms race and the Cold War with Visconti, Adrian Ballou and Simon House all playing mandolins loan from the Montreux Music Shop. Fantastic Voyage was performed for the first time on stage for the reality tour in 2003. Uh, African Night Flight, there's always one song on a Bowie album that sort of points to the next. So he'd done, on Heroes, he'd done The Secret Life of Arabia. So you think that's a, sl- a bit of a dry run, perhaps, for uh, you know, the exotic African Night Flight, which was inspired by a safari trip to Kenya that Bowie had taken with his then six-year-old son, Zowie Stroke Duncan, uh, specifically the time he met German fighter pilots who were always drunk in bars and felt unable to return home. Uh, Edo is credited with uh, cricket menace on this tune, isn't he? Yeah, he is, yeah. So Move On was a commentary on Bowie's own restlessness, working title Someone's Calling Me, and came about when he played all the young dudes backwards on his Revox player by mistake, but loved it. That's amazing, isn't it? So that is that. It's yeah. all the young dudes. Yeah. Uh, yes, I said a bit of a white reggae tune, this, with a Turkish flavour. Song's title comes from the Turkish verb used to uh, wish somebody a long life, literally meaning may he or she live. Okay. Uh, so Red Sails was partially inspired by Noy, that drum and guitar sound especially, said Bowie. He added that the point of difference was Adrian Ballou's guitar because he'd never even heard of Noy. Yeah. So this is how Bowie uh, described that track. He said it married a uh, German new music feel and put it against the idea of a contemporary English mercenary come swashbuckling Errol Flynn and put him in the China Sea. What? To produce a lovely cross-reference of cultures. I mean, that was one of the highlights for me. I've seen him do that on the Serious Moonlight tour at Milton Keynes doing Red Sails because it's so unexpected. Expected. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Moving on now to DJ, the second single. It was a droll study of the life of a disc jockey. I beg your pardon, oh. David. Uh, on a musical level, Adrian Ballou said, "For DJ, I ran through it three times, discovering new things all the time, trying different sounds and entirely different approaches. Then they took all the best bits and spliced them together. When you listen to that record, you realise there's no way I can make those changes." Bowie only started to play this live on the outside tour in 1995. Yeah, we mentioned "Look Back in Anger," and this is one where Eno got his chart out and put his eight favourite chords on the wall, pointed to them, told the band, just get into funky groove, boys. So, by all accounts, I mean, bearing in mind, this is the black rhythm section here of Carlos Alomar, Dennis Davis and George Murray. They felt like they'd been patronised. Mm. Sean Mays remembered later some grumbling about this back-to-school session. It's a great record, but it's, it's probably not a really great way to approach the recording. Not it, really. It? And then to get people motivated. Anyway, a brilliant, brilliant record. I love it. I think it's a real thriller. Mm. Uh, Boys Keep Swinging again. The first single was notable for guitarist Carlos Alomar and drummer Dennis Davis in the unfamiliar roles of drummer and bass player. 
player, respectively. Tony Visconti said that the song used the exact same chord changes and structure, even the same key, as Fantastic Voyage. And of course it comes with this great video, doesn't it? So this is directed by David Mallet, who Bowie collaborated with a few times. So you've got Bowie uh, sort of singing it in a nightclub, but behind him in drag is uh, three versions of himself, backup singers, weren't they? And at the end, each of them which is Bowie, of course, walks to the front of the stage, takes off his, her wig and runs his or her hand across his, her mouth, smearing his, her lipstick each time. And it was, the story goes, it so horrified viewers on Top of the Pops that it was probably the only single that was played on there that went down the really? next week. Yeah. Wow, OK. But he also played it on the Kenny Everett show, didn't he, memorably? He did. And, you know, I mean, that was a great thing. Again, you're talking about, you know, motivating people and sending them off in different directions. But it sounds so great because it's loose, because it's not a proper drummer yeah. on it. You know, so it's just, I could play drums like that. You know, it's, it's pretty clunky, but brilliant. And it, it makes is. it sound like it's a young band. It sounds like kids are playing it. Yeah, definitely. But it's not. They're just really... Some of the best musicians that you will ever hear. It's a bit like the uh, Eric Morecambe thing where he says that about playing the piano. He said, you're playing all the right notes, but in the wrong order. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just brilliant. Yeah. Uh, repetition. Now, Bowie did this in session for us uh, oh. from Made Avail for Radio 1. So we were on in the afternoon. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he did Can't Help Thinking About Me, you know, and uh, which I'd requested, which already gave me a buzz, and he did Driving Saturday. Yeah. And he said, oh, I'll do repetition as well. And he's thinking, wow, wow, this is groundbreaking. A song about, you know, horrible domestic yeah. violence. And he's playing it live on Radio 1 at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I know that Bowie really appreciated that he loved that the fact that he, we were letting him do yeah. it because somebody else might have gone oh do you think that's right David but we're like Bingo! Because it wasn't something you'd find regularly in his set list at all, would it? No, uh, no, no. Uh, uh, Red Money uh, added new words to a Bowie Alomar tune that originally appeared as Sister Midnight, of course, on The Idiot from Iggy Pop in 77. That's right, so the album cover now uh, collaborated with English pop artist Derek Boschia on the cover. Uh, the original Gatefold album sleeve featured a full-length shot of Bowie by photographer Brian Duffy as an accident victim in a tiled bathroom heavily made up with an apparent broken nose squashed up against glass and holding what might be a ray in his bandaged right hand. Uh, for effect, the image was deliberately uh, done in low resolution, taken with a cheap Polaroid camera. The inside of the gatefold included pictures of uh, Che Guevara's corpse, Andrea Mantegna's Lamentation of Christ, and Bowie being readied for the cover photo itself. Yeah. When we come to the reaction here for Lodger, it, well, mixed reviews, you might say. Rolling Stone called it one of his weakest, scattered, a footnote to heroes, an act of marking time. Melody Maker described it as nice enough, but slightly faceless. Okay. In Village Voice, by contrast, Robert Kreisgau wrote that the odd nature of the songs was part of their charm. The way they confound categories of sensibility and sophistication is so frustrating that it is satisfying. In the meantime, the New York Times called it Bowie's most eloquent record for years. Also, this is interesting, major Bowie fan Moby has said that the only reason he got his first job as a golf caddy, apparently, was so that he could afford to buy Lodger. <laughs> is that right? Mm. Okay. Uh, should we move on to the personnel here? David Bowie, of course. And Brian Eno. So it's got Ambient drone, prepared piano and cricket menace mentioned before, guitar treatments, synthesizers, keyboards, horse trumpet. So is that a bugle? Is that a horse trumpet? Is that a posh bugle, I think. Oh, right, OK. Anyway, I'm backing vocals. Uh, Tony Visconti, obviously, doing, playing mandolin guitar, bass guitar, backing vocals too. Yeah, we've got Adrian Bellew. Carlos Alomar. Dennis Davis. George Murray. Sean Mays. Simon House. Roger Powell. And Stan Harrison. And it was produced by David Bowie and Tony Visconti, not Eno. 
That's right. So a couple of quotes here from when Stephen Dalton and I interviewed Bowie, uh, albeit via email for uh, Uncut Magazine in 2001, talking about Lodger. And he'd said that he wished he and Tony Visconti had taken more time, you know, mixing the album. Bowie said this had a lot to do with my being distracted by personal events in my life at the time. And I think Tony lost heart a little because it never came together as easily as both Lowe and Heroes had. I would still maintain, though, there are a number of really important ideas on Lodger. Right, okay. And uh, he also said in the same interview, didn't he, Bob? Tony, Brian and I created a powerful, anguished, sometimes euphoric language of sounds. Nothing else sounded like those albums. Nothing else came close. If I never made another album, it really wouldn't matter now. My complete being is with those three. They are my DNA. It's a wow. great quote, and that's about the Berlin Trilogy, of course. Yeah. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is also for the lower third, and this is from Kevin Kahn's book, Any Day Now, the 5th of May, 1965. Having been invited to write songs by Shel Talmy, he informs the producer that he's no longer interested in continuing with the Manish Boys, which was news to fellow Manish Boys Bob Solly and Paul Rodriguez, who turned up at Talmy's office at the same time. Awkward. Yeah, okay. so Rodriguez later went on to say about the absconding Bowie, it is understood that a 17-year-old Davy, who sported shoulder-length blonde hair, was upset when the record appeared without a personal credit on the label. There was a furious row about this. I bet there was. It seems that Bowie also took their breaking down in the Manish Boys van on what turned out to be their last gig as a sign. It probably was. So, having jumped ship from the Manish Boys in 1965, David Jones learns of an existing band from Margate called The Lower Third, comprising of Dennis Teacup Taylor, bassist Graham Rivens, and drummer Les Mighall, who are looking for a singer. After an audition at La Gioconda Club, Bowie's mate and future Small Faces leader Stevie Marriott auditions. But Bowie wins a day after a rendition of Little Richard's Rip It Up on saxophone. Great. When I heard he was also a singer, I said, We must have him, said Teacup Taylor, apparently. And so it came to pass. Mm. David Jones and the Lower Third make their live debut at the Happy Towers Ballroom, Edgbaston in Birmingham, on the 3rd of June, 1965, appearing on a revolving stage. Clearly they'd arrived, Absolutely. They? So the following night they appear in Tadcaster, after which, on the way back down south, their Atlas van breaks down. Oh, no, not another sign, surely. No, no good news, oh. though. Upon reaching London, uh, Graham Riven's dad, he bought the band a new van. Well, it was an old ambulance, in actual fact, which they tarted up a little bit whilst leaving the word ambulance on the side and of course leaving the bell intact just in case of an emergency very clever so despite this graham rivens leaves the band okay i don't know if the dad wanted these van back or anyway a uh, new drummer phil lancaster joins and it's around this time davy jones once got billed as a controversial davy jones now this is in relationship uh, to the fact that he's heading up pardon the phrase the society for the pretension of cruelty to long-haired men as yes. we all know about the organization uh, and it's during his stint with the lower third that Bowie has all of those locks cut off. Mm. Recording-wise, in total, they released two singles, one under his real name, David Jones, and the other with a non-de-plume, which he would keep for the rest of his life, David Bowie. And they gigged a lot, didn't they, the lower third, including opening for Johnny Kidd and the Pirates at the end of July in 65, and for the Pretty Things around the same time. Yeah, so Bowie said in 1983, we'd go from London to Manchester, then back to London, then Leeds. The rest of the group were all right. They'd been sleeping all day. We used to arrive at gigs about four o'clock in the afternoon. I hadn't had any sleep because I'd been driving all night. And then they would say, come on, we've got to rehearse. <laughs> the BBC turned down the Lower Thirds application for a session, saying that Bowie is a Cockney type, but not outstanding. A singer devoid of personality. Sings wrong notes and out of tune. I 
mean, even, that is a real brutal assessment, isn't it? Especially for a young hopeful as well. It is. That's a real knock, isn't it? But uh, he had the confidence. He, he rode it, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So by the January of 1966, it becomes apparent to the lower third that Bowie was growing tired of the association. At their final gig at the Bromel, at Bromley Tech, they arrived to find no mention of themselves on the bill, just David Bowie. Oh. The same day, Ralph Horton tells the band they won't be getting any wages because money is too tight. Mm, inevitably, Bowie left the outfit and the lower third carried on as a three-piece until the late summer of 1966. OK, so the first single, You've Got a Habit of Leaving, written by David Bowie or David Jones and released on the 20th of August. And of course, to avoid any confusion with David Jones of the Monkees and having tried an array of other stage names, uh, Bowie plumped for and he stuck with David Bowie. With the lower third, Bowie moved away from Americanized R&B of his two earlier singles into Who-style mod music. However, a typical concert at this time would incorporate Mars from Gustav Holtz The Planets and Chim Chim Cherie from Mary Poppins. Most peculiar. Bowie's future manager, Ken Pitt, attended one of these mid-60s concerts where the band finished with the Rogers and Hammerstein song, You'll Never Walk Alone. It's right on mishmash. He used Absol- to throw everything in there, didn't Absolutely. he? Absolutely. The single was made up of two Bowie compositions, as you mentioned. You've got a habit of leaving and Baby Loves That Way. Yeah, produced by Shel Talmy. Now, Chuckle Brothers for the uh, To Me, To You, To Me, To You, Davy Jones vocals, alto and tenor saxophone harmonica. Dennis Teacup Taylor, lead guitar. Graham Death Rivens. What a nickname on bass. Uh, Ominous. Phil Lancaster on drums. Yeah, absolutely. And the second single, really great. Mentioned it previously uh, in this uh, podcast, but can't help thinking Mm. about me. I love that record. Yeah, again, written by Bowie with the lower third. First David Bowie record to be released in the States, as well as the first time the name Bowie appeared under the songwriter's credit. Yeah, so the song was recorded within 15 days of the 18-year-old Bowie signing to the Pi Records label as David Bowie with the lower third on the 25th of November 1965 through successful producer and songwriter Tony Hatch. Hatch signed Bowie to the label based on two demos, this song, and Now You've Met the London Boys, as it was originally titled, proffered by Bowie's then-manager, Ralph Horton. The single and B-side are both recorded in the basement of Pye's offices in Great Cumberland Place, near Marble Arch in central London, on 10th of December 1965, and Tony Hatch also played piano on the single and provided backing vocals along with the rest of the band. Yeah, so Can't Help Thinking About Me was officially released on Friday the 14th of January and later released in the US by Warner Brothers in May 1966. However, the lower third split from Bowie on the 28th of January over financial disagreements regarding who was being paid what with manager Ralph Horn. Yeah. Uh, believing Bowie was not supporting their side of the argument, Graham Rivens, Phil Lancaster and Dennis Taylor ended their short-lived collaboration and reluctantly walked away literally weeks after their record deal with Pi Records. It has been so dispiriting for them. The single failed to make either the UK or the US charts despite being reasonably well received by the critics at the time. After dropping the song from his gigs after mid-66, he played it several times with his new band, The Buzz, at the marquee. Uh, Can't Help Thinking About Me was eventually resurrected 31 years later and played live regularly in 1999, as well as on the Bowie VH1 Storytellers programme and, of course, with a session that Bowie did for uh, you and Mark Radcliffe. That's right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. L is for mm, the Laughing Gnome. Sorry, David. Here we go. Released as a single on the 14th of April 1967. One of the strangest songs in the Bowie canon, initially conceived as a novelty record. Diram, his record label, were either clutching at straws or thought this was a surefire way to get a hit from their new signing. So, recorded when Bowie was still deep into his Anthony Newley phase at Decca Studios number no. 2 over four days in January, February and March 1967. The best way to describe it is is jaunty. The song is a dialogue between Bowie and a very cheery gnome, courtesy of the sped-up voice of engineer Gus Dudgeon. So Bowie and Dudgeon tried a few different gnome voices at various speeds with different dialogue and bad puns. Uh, producer Mike Vernon used the same very speed technique that he'd used on kids' TV show Pinky and Perky. Uh, Bowie and Dudgeon also cut a version of the song using only gnome voices, calling themselves... The Rolling Gnomes, of Very course. Very good, yeah. So Dudgeon recalled in 1993, we sat around for ages trying to come up with those ghastly jokes. I haven't had the courage to play the record at half speed because if I did, I'd hear my actual voice. We did have a good laugh. Fair enough. Trainee engineer Barry Johnston, who was a son of the famous BBC cricket commentator Brian Johnston, remembered that Bowie was very keen on sound effects and that the recording sessions for the Laughing Gnome were actually quite tricky. Yeah, well, it was a, a pretty ambitious little yeah, record, wasn't certainly. it? Yeah. Uh, the guitarist on the Laughing Gnome was Peter Hampshire, who previously failed an audition as John Hutchinson's replacement in The Buzz seven months earlier. The B-side was The Gospel According to Tony Day. So the personnel, David Bowie. Derek Boys on organ. Peter Hampshire on guitar. Deck Fernley on bass. John Eager on drums. Gus Dudgeon, gnome vocal. And Mike Vernon was the producer. So the basic rhythm of the song, as we may have mentioned elsewhere on the podcast, actually, was based on the Waiting for the Man tune by Velvet Underground. And the ha-ha-ha-he-he-he chorus is supposedly lifted from the trad jazz tune Little Brown Jug. Oh, yes. Reviews were mixed. What a surprise. Writing in The Times in 1967, William Mann called it a heavy-handedly facetious number which deserved to be a flop. Boo. Uh, the enemy begged to differ, writing that it was a novelty number chock full of appeal. This boy sounds remarkably like Anthony Newley, and he wrote the song himself. An amusing lyric, with David Bowie interchanging lines with a chipmunk-like creature. It's a gnome, not a chipmunk. Oh, what are they like? Uh, so later on, the enemy's Charles Shalmurray, here we go, declared it undoubtedly the most embarrassing example of Bowie juvenilia. On the other side of the spectrum, Bowie biographer David Buckley has called it a supremely catchy children's song, reminiscent of Sid Barrett's solo stuff. Uh, and 
early stuff with Pink Floyd, and Nicholas Pegg made the valid point that the world would be a duller place without the Laughing Gnome. It's a fair point, yeah. Uh, it made no impression whatsoever on its initial release, but when reissued in 1973, at the peak of Bowie's early 70s popularity, it got to number six on the UK singles chart. The single went silver in the UK, meaning it sold a quarter of a million copies. Well, Mark Boland commented at the time, slightly cattily, it just shows you it doesn't pay to be cool, man. Rock and roll suicide hit the dust and the laughing gnomes took over. Oh, oh. Couldn't, couldn't resist, could he? Apparently, Bowie was mortified that DRAM decided to re-release it. Well, he would be. Uh, hoping to follow suit, London Records reissued the laughing gnome in the US on the same day that Sorrow came out. Oh. But it flopped completely, much to Bowie's relief. <laughs> uh, Bowie must have placed some faith in the laughing gnome, though, because it was part of his act in August 1968 when he auditioned for various cabaret promoters in London. He even used a gnome glove puppet to accentuate the effect. Oh, Ooh, I wonder if there was film. Oh. A second reissue in 1982 wasn't as successful, failing to charm. I mean, they're pushing the luck here. Yeah, they they are. Just quite ridiculous, yes. really. And uh, and they probably did do it because Bowie wasn't releasing anything else at that point in time and yeah. thought, right, because if you're going to have a clash with another Bowie record, it's probably not going to win out, is it? Yeah, very odd. In 1990, this is the great bit, Bowie announced that the uh, set list for his Sound and Vision tour would be decided by telephone voting. So the enemy decided to try and rig the voting, the buzzword being just say gnome, so that he'd have to do the laughing gnome. Bowie then decided to scrap the voting system altogether. Yeah, so he did tell Melody Maker, I was wondering how to do it, maybe in the style of the Velvet Underground or something, until I found out the poll was a scam perpetrated by another music paper. That was an end to it. I can't pander to the press now, can I? And he also considered playing it in his 2003 reality tour. And I went to uh, watch Bowie doing his sound check if, after he'd been on the uh, programme with, with Mark Radcliffe yeah. and I. And, um, and he started, he sang it from the stage. The band didn't join in or anything, oh. but, he, but he sang not a lot of it, yeah, but yeah. some of it. Uh, there aren't many people who've seen Bowie doing uh, The Laughing Gnome on stage, but I, I am one of the few. Oh, lucky man. So the mono single and its uh, B-side were given a stereo remix in July 2009 at Abbey Road Studios for the uh, deluxe package of Bowie's debut album. The original 1967 single is heavily prized, isn't mm. it, among collectors? Yep. UK pressings in mint condition, valued at £200 and over by Record Collector's Rare Record Price Guide. In 2011, an original Belgian demo pressing sold for over £2,300. Wow, OK. And in 1968, Ronnie Hilton, in his broad Yorkshire voice, covered it as a B-side of If I Were a Rich Man. And Hilton had previously had a hit with Windmill in Old Amsterdam. And... I didn't know this, Bob. Buster Blood Vessel did a techno version on Diamond God's interpretations of Bowie in 2001. I you, didn't know that either. You've not heard it then, neither have I. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. L is for Leonard. Jerry Leonard. Irish lead guitar player and solo artist known for his harmonic and ambient guitar style and for his work with David Bowie, of course. That's why we're doing him. He's lived and worked in Dublin, Copenhagen and Manhattan. From Clontarf in Dublin, Leonard played in bands as a teen, influenced by a mixture of Led Zeppelin, punk and post-punk, and whatever was playing on Top of the Pops. Early on, he worked as a tape operator at Lombard Sound Studios in Dublin, where one job he had was recording a demo by a 16-year-old Sinead O'Connor, and he got to see U2 and Phil Linnett at work. He then studied classical guitar for five years at the Municipal College of Music in Dublin, particularly interested in exploring the instrument's harmonic possibilities. He's an amazing technician. He is, 
he's brilliant. He really is. In 1989, he moved to Copenhagen, where he formed the band Hinterland with Donald Coughlin. Uh, Leonard handled guitars and production, and Coughlin sang and played bass and keyboards with writing duties shared by both. The band released an album with Ireland, Kissing the Roof of Heaven, in 1990, and toured in Ireland and the UK, Germany and Switzerland. The last Hinterland release was an EP called Resurrect, which came out in 1992. Okay, so his uh, career is a session musician and a touring musician and writer and producer. So New York's East Village was the next stop for Leonard, where he established himself as a solo performer, producer and a session player. He has recorded and toured, usually as lead guitarist, with Laurie Anderson, Cindy Lauper, Sophie B. Hawkins and Avril Lavigne, amongst others. In addition to playing guitar for Rufus Wainwright, Leonard was the musical director for Wainwright's Milwaukee at Last Tour and subsequent live album. He works a lot with Suzanne Vega, touring with her effectively as a duo, and he produced and is given writing credits on all the songs on her album Tales from the Realm of the Queen of Pentacles, uh, which was the on came out on Amanuensis Productions in 2014. I saw Suzanne Vega live only about 18 months ago in Manchester, and looking, you know, I was sat right in front of Jerry Leonard, and he was brilliant because you know people see Vega like early, know her for that early folky stuff, mm. but there was a phase in her career where she started to go a bit ambient industrial, and Jerry Leonard was really in his element on that stuff, and he was phenomenal just to watch, you know, doing this stuff. Well, I saw Rufus Wainwright probably about five or oh, six yeah, times same here, yeah. with, with Jerry Leonard in the band, and uh, yeah, the soundscapes that he was making for those really complicated uh, works of genius by yeah. Rufus Wainwright, incredible, incredible. Uh, he's also worked on various film soundtracks, and his, uh, his own personal work, Spooky Ghosts, and that's him as a solo artist, isn't it? Okay, so here we go. David Bowie. Yeah, so Leonard worked extensively with Bowie, featuring on the albums Heathen, Reality and The Next Day. Uh, he toured with Bowie on the Heathen and Reality Tours. I was musical director for the Reality Tour and DVD. He has the only original writing credits other than Bowie on The Next Day for the songs Boss of Me and I'll Take You There. Yeah, so Bowie and Leonard were introduced by Mark Platty. Leonard first worked with Bowie on a track from the abandoned album Toy, which Platty was producing. Mm. Besides availing of Leonard's own style, Bowie also needed him live as he was equally able to cover the Stranger guitar parts on older Bowie songs, such as those originally played by Robert Fripp or Adrian Ballou, and to rock out. So that shows what a great technician yeah. he is. If you're not going to get Robert Fripp these days, or Adrian Ballou, I suspect. So Jerry Leonard, uh, the go-to man. Definitely. Leonard's first live performance with Bowie was for the straight-through performance of the entirety of both Heathen and Low in the Roseland Ballroom in 2002. And in 2013, he participated Participated in an April Fool's Day spoof involving an announcement that Bowie be representing Germany in that year's Eurovision Song Contest. I was lucky to interview Jerry Leonard around the time of the next day, and he was just one of the most self-effacing people you could ever speak to. He was just such a lovely gent. He seems very, very sweet and super talented. Bit like myself. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. L is for Lion's Maid advert. Okay, so on the 22nd of January 1969, a week or so after finishing Space Oddity and in a break from filming Love You Till Tuesday, Davy Bowie featured in a TV advert for Lion's Maid's Love Ice Lolly. That's L-U-V, isn't it? Yeah, Love Lollies promised a free pop star picture inside and exciting pop star posters and badges, see back. Uh, other promotional material included wall charts and T-shirts, similar to Fab. It really was. I was trying to think of the lolly that it looks like. I like Fab Lollies. Oh, yes. And it was aimed... Oh, blimey. What does this say about me then? It was aimed at girls between 10 and 15 years old. Oops. 
Three quarters of the lolly was covered in chocolate and hundreds and thousands, and it cost nine old pence. I should say at this point, I really like knobbly bubblies as well, Mark. Well, say no more. He and his fellow actors met at Eccleston Square in London for the black and white shoot on a double-decker bus and in a staged live performance. Bowie is seen holding up a lolly as he gets on the bus and he climbs up the stairs with a big smile all over his face, Mark. Aww. And you can see this on, uh, on YouTube, can't you? Yeah. He's also a singer-guitarist in the mock band. The ad itself was directed by Ridley Scott. So this is way before he was doing films, of course, because Scott and his brother Tony had their own company making adverts called RSA. The soundtrack for the ad was recorded by a band called Mint and released on the Tangerine label in 1969. Amazingly, it flopped. Uh, sample lyrics here. Love, 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 let me give it all to you. Let me know that someday you'll do the same for me. Love, love, love. And then a spoken word segment now from Lion's Maid. Everybody needs it. Okay, so on the 22nd of May 1969, a week after Bowie had gone to an agency about appearing in a Kit Kat advert, Lions Maid withdrew the ice lolly film because nobody was buying them. The product was quickly taken off the market and renamed Fab, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kenneth Pitt said that Bowie was paid 25 guineas for his appearance in the advert. Bowie also supposedly wanted to keep his costume as a souvenir, but the production company phoned him a few days later and said they wanted it back. What a shame. That could yeah. well have ended up in the David Bowie's exhibition. Couldn't yeah. he? Uh, there was lots of Bowie activity on screen, at least behind the scenes during the time. From Nicholas Pegg's book, a year earlier he'd auditioned for Oh What a Lovely War and Alan. What's that then? Ooh, uh, Bowie also made a second round of auditions for Hair, and Lionel Blair remembered auditioning him for a stage music. I never knew that. Never heard that. Lindsay Kemp also invited Bowie along with Hermione Farthingale to appear with him in Panto in Scotland in late '68, Puss in Boots to be exact, but they turned it down. And director Michael Armstrong, who'd made the image with Bowie, wanted him to play a part in a full-length horror film he was making. Julian Barnes eventually got the role alongside Dennis Price and Frankie Avalon in the film called The Haunted House of Horror. Wow, OK. And so in November 1969, Bowie auditioned for John Schlesinger's Sunday Bloody Sunday. Murray Head eventually got the role. And of course, he did appear briefly in The Virgin Soldiers. Filmmaker Tony Palmer met up with David Bowie in December 1969 to talk about the possibility of appearing in the film Groupie Girl. And it stayed a possibility, didn't it? It did. An impossibility. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Lulu, Live Aid, Labyrinth, Lazarus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.